And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate, from the morning until midday, before the men and the women, and those that could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood, which they had made for the purpose. And then the text goes on to describe the six men that were on one side and the seven that were up there with him on the other side. So let's define pulpit. Now back in, in that time, uh, it was Latin for pulpitum, which meant platform or staging. Kind of like this is the pulpit area. It's, it's a platform. So it was large enough for how many get people? Yeah, it was large enough for 14 people. I mean, so it wasn't a little bitty small area. And, and if you read on into that story, which we don't have time to really, there's so much in there, especially the Watergate. That is such a neat story. But they would read the Bible, right in that text, it says they started early in the morning and they read the Bible until midday. And everybody stood in the street as one man. That means when you look at a crowd, like on the sidewalk and the grass of the White House, when, when everybody goes up there to protest and to picket, when you look at it, it's just all you see is, is people. It's just one conglomerate glob of heads. That's the way this was. Everybody's just standing there in the street. So here they build this stage, this platform that is elevated higher than the people for audibility and visibility. Now, a lot of times, those, some of those areas were in like a rectangle shape, and they would take the pulpit and they would build it on the long wall for the voice projection so they didn't. We call it shotgun sanctuaries. We got married at Calvary, and... You know, here comes the bride. Da, da. I think the lady had to play it four times because the aisle is so long and Keila's with her dad and it was, you know. And I'm like, I'm just standing that there. And I remember the preacher, T.D. Burgess, he, there was two pastors and he looked over and he's like, smile, boy. I mean, it's just, I was like, one, she's beautiful. Two, she's really far away. It's like, is, this, is she ever going to get here? So that was what we called the, the shotgun sanctuary. But they would turn it the other direction to where they could sometimes build it with a backdrop just to help with the audible voice. So that's what the pulpit is. It's the Latin. It's a stage. It's a platform that was built just for clergy. You didn't dance on it. He, we did, he forgot to tag me in. We had this thing of tagging me in. And, but you didn't, you didn't dance on the pulpit. You didn't tell jokes. You, you, didn't, you didn't get up there and do plays. There was something about that area that it was specific for one thing, and that was the Word of God, the teaching and, and the preaching and the reading of the Scriptures. So I have a little information because some of you love information. 
But I want to give you a little bit of, about the origin of the pulpit. It was first mentioned around 250. Now, if you go back into there and you study, I like to study chronological. The early churches met in homes, right, or other places. They didn't have buildings. So church buildings began around 300 when Constantine the Great was converted to Christianity. And I, and I had a picture. You guys remember the picture where they build these enormous pulpits and they've got a little statue of him on one. It, it just pride, I guess, you know. Well, if we're going to have the first pulpit, I'll have to have my picture. So they've got this image of him. So when he was converted to Christianity, he gave churches the power to be able to hold buildings. No more having to meet in houses. So churches began to be built all over the Roman Empire. And every church built a pulpit. Now, it was thought that the pulpit suggested a theological prominence in the preaching of the Word and that the furniture represented the authority of Scripture in a visual way. So they built them big. They built two-story, spiral staircases with a roof, multi-level. This guy could lead music. This one could read. But this one up at the top was where the preacher stood. And these things were enormous. You know, go big or go home, right? So they thought, the furnace, this just this lets everybody know how powerful God is. We need a big platform. So that's kind of how the pulpit came. And then over time, the position of the pulpit, it was central because it was the main element of gathering. It was in the middle. Nothing else was supposed to be central but the Word of God. That's how it started. And then we get into the, middle, the medieval times. They call them the Middle Ages. And the pulpits were moved to the sides. Uh, Kay, you was talking about going into the Emory Chapel. She came in one Wednesday night. She's like, yeah, I saw it and I remembered what you said because you ever been in the churches where there's two? There's one on each side? Well, in the Middle Ages, they came in and they, they got the pulpit out of the middle because it wasn't really the main thing anymore. Humanity and, and humans and pride got involved in, in who God was and they had the table and the altar. That's, that was the important part. And it all became about mass. The pulpits were pushed to the side because that wasn't central. It wasn't the way it was supposed to be. But then we have the, the Reformation, where the pulpit is brought back into the middle, the restructure, bringing back the main thing to the main thing. So if my pictures were working, I would have a pulpit smack in the middle, but this is probably better than a picture. It's right in the middle for a reason. When you walk into a church, this area lets anyone know that the main element about church is where the pastor stands and what the pastor does when he stands here. There's, there's just something about this piece of wood that Doug Todd did such a beautiful job on. We'll do a lot of things to chairs and we'll throw things around, but I've watched these teenagers pick this thing up. We don't carry this thing like we do anything else in this church. There's something sacred. The old-timers called it the sacred desk. There's just something about being up here that makes men nervous. 
just standing. It's not, you know, I've known some guys, they just can't stand. They're so intimidated by being at a microphone. And they always want to yank the mic down or push it way up. They're just, they just can't be. But what they don't know is it's not even turned on. But just, there's something about being up here. The position of the pulpit. Then there's the power of the pulpit. I mean, it, it was just things built out of wood. But what it represented and, and what it accommodated and, and what took place there, it ministered to the people. More so than if the pastor were just sitting somewhere that couldn't be seen and couldn't be heard. There was something about being elevated, setting the word of God above everything else that created this environment. I have four things that I put down. It, it was a place that represented conviction, true worship, great consolation, and it's a place of hope. Every preacher, every pastor that ever stands in a pulpit knows that the Word of God brings conviction. The light that gets into our dark spaces. Showing up the things that we talked about in Sunday school that shouldn't be done in the dark. And true worship. You know, one scholar said, if you are convicted by the Word of God, you should instantly have a heart of worship. Because to not feel anything is a dangerous thing to sit in a church and never feel what the Word of God can do in your own heart. He said, if you feel conviction, that should lead to true worship. So yeah, conviction, true worship, consolation, place of hope. Let me read to you, read with me here, verses 5 through 8. And it, it talks about these elements. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Yeah, usually we have to ask people to stand. I was fortunate enough to be in a Christian school that we stood up regardless, Sam. We didn't have a choice. And after a while, we did it because we knew why we were doing it as young boys. But when a lady walked in a room, we stood up. And whenever our principal opened up the Bible, we stood up. He didn't have to say, all right, everybody stand. We were just taught that there's, there's something very unique and special about this Bible. And, you know, we go through life and get away from that, but we always come back to the things that we learn as a kid, right? And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up of their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua and Bani and Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shebathiah. And, I mean, there's just a whole list that I know I will mispronounce. And all the Levites caused the people to understand the law and the people stood in their place. This is a picture of Ezra reading the scripture 
with unction and, and power from on high and all of these other men, whether they're going to people or how long, I mean, they're there for hours. If they started at 8 or 9 in the morning, they, they read it until lunchtime. That's three hours of standing there listening to a man read Scripture. He had all these people maybe to help him read. Some scholars say he would get tired. And someone else would jump in and take over reading a while. But these, these people were explaining the Scriptures. Can, can you picture this environment of somebody... It's, it's as if I've seen it all my life. The pastor's pre or the, the, the evangelist is preaching, it's revival, and the pastor's down front, and as he's preaching, somebody walks out an aisle and they come down to the pastor and they want to know more about what was just said. That is how the power of God was working in that setting. But there was just it was all over the place. Let's go back to it. So they read in the book in the law of God distinctly. And gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. When Ezra stood up behind or on the platform, I'm sure they had, you know, some people say they had just this three, three pieces of wood with just something to hold the, the scriptures, which, you know, was the law, the first five books, the Torah, you know. And they all stood up there, and when he read it, there was this overwhelming presence of, of conviction, which leads to true worship. There's consolation. There's hope. That's what the pulpit represents for people who don't come to church. I don't go to church, you bunch of hypocrites. I've, I've heard that often. But what this represents to people that walk in and look at this and they say, wow, that's a, that's a pretty podium. It's not a podium, really. It's a pulpit. That was designed for this purpose. So I've heard this said, when, when God's man stands in God's pulpit and proclaims God's word, something amazing happens. Spiritual awakening begins. Some call it spiritual awakening. I like to use the word revive. Revival. If you study the word revive, it means to restore to its original condition. I could buy the most expensive Corvette in town, and I'm going to have to wax it probably. Why? Because the elements of this world tarnish it and take away its luster. The rain beats on it, destroys the way it was created to be. So we revive the finish and restore it by waxing the car. That's what I call revival. That's what the preaching of God's Word does to the heart of a Christian. It revives, it restores. And a lot of times, a pastor or a preacher can preach anywhere that you don't even know people. But when the Word of God is preached properly, it, it has its effect. It will always convict it will always challenge and encourage. It will always motivate. It will always cause people to worship. Some churches, isn't it funny how churches are, are, are diverse? And some, you know, we, we're quiet people. And I've been in some that the minute you start singing, somebody's going to shout. That happened in Pilgrim's Knob. Scared me to death. I thought somebody got hurt. You know, I hadn't really heard that a whole lot of... 
then I had heard it. So there's a lot of things that take place when this book is preached. And, and I've been fortunate enough to see that. Some people sit and just weep. That's the way my granddaddy was. He didn't say much, but he'd just sit there, you know, and cry. And then some people, like Walt Shepard, he would get up and leave the church. And you'd hear him outside, you know, well, praise the Lord, you know. He'd walk the church. And he was, a, he was just one of those dear saints. But there's a spiritual awakening. Let's look on down here, verse 13. This is... This is going to blow you away, Hunter. You, you, so if you want to, you know, you call me if you want to do stuff like this. Look at verse 13. On the second day were gathered together the chief of the fathers of all the people and the priests and the Levites unto Ezra the scribe, even to understand the words of the law. They came back the second day for more. And they found written in the law which the Lord had commanded by Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in booths in the feast of the seventh month and that they should publish and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem saying, Go forth unto the mountain, fetch olive branches and pine branches and myrtle branches and palm branches and branches of the thick trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went forth and they brought them and they made themselves booths. Everyone upon the roof of his house and in the courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the street of the water gate and in the, the street of the gate of Ephraim. I think this is probably where the world gets this Woodstock thing from, you know. Everybody just grab your tents and head to the field. So the people went forth and they brought them and they made themselves booths, everyone upon his roof, the water gate, the streets, the gate of Ephraim, and all the congregation of them that were come again out of the captivity made booths. And they sat under the booths. For since the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, unto the day had not the children of Israel done so. And there was very great gladness. Also day by day from the first day unto the last day, he read in the book of the law of God. And they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day was a solemn assembly according unto the manner. Now let's keep reading. Now in the twenty and fourth day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fastings and with sackcloths and, and earth upon them. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read in the book of the law of the Lord their God one fourth part of the day and another fourth part they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. And that the strangest story. How in the world can a group of people get together and stay for seven days just having revival? For some of us, it seems foreign. For some, we can think back and, and remember. Um, right after I was a youth pastor, I took a van load of, of teenage guys to uh, higher ground. Ralph Sexton was doing a revival. And I thought, I'm going to take these guys. They need reviving. They need the Lord. And, and we get down there. And guess who ends up at the altar? Broken. And none of those guys. That revival went for three weeks. I, I didn't go. I only went four times. But a revival in our culture lasted for three weeks. And I don't mean a little one. I'm talking thousands of people. We, we see it on TV. We hear about it. Uh, I like being in the midst of a, of a real one. 
and that one with uh, Ralph Sexton, man, that, that, was a, that was a good one. But in this story, these people were spiritually hungry. And I had a pastor friend in Georgia that made the comment one time. He, he said, we in the West are so full, we're just pushing away from the table. And these people were spiritually hungry. So as I sat studying, I wrote down here, can I say that about myself? Or do I come here because I have to, you know? If they didn't pay me, would I be here? Do we have to come? And I've had people ask me, why do y'all go to church so much? You go on Sunday nights? Most churches don't go on Sunday nights. I think spiritual hungry people show up on a Sunday night. I think people who want more than just status quo come to church more than once a week. And I mean, I'm glad you're here. I enjoy coming to church. I didn't used to. But here's the key. This is for you guys. The more you're around this, you may not like it now, but it is planting seeds deep within you that you'll never forget. You'll never be able to rid yourself of them. And someday, I promise you, you will look back and you will thank your parents for the biblical heritage that you've been given and I think of the kids in Keyless classrooms at school and the stories that I hear every day she comes home they have no hope outside of this this is the conviction this is the worship this is the consolation this is the hope and they're doomed without it I mean our school thinks it's just a little thing that they invite Justin Hall to come and give him a little 10-minute devotion right before a football game. You know, I've done that dozens of times myself. It's just what we do, we, you know, have a meal. But little do they know what's coming out of here and through his lips. Something happens between a pastor's lips and a person's ears. Things are happening because there is power that comes out of this book. So what did I tell you? The position of the pulpit, the power of the pulpit, and the person of the pulpit. This one's kind of interesting. It kind of changes a little bit. Along comes Jesus into humanity. And he's carrying his pulpit. We know that to be the cross. You remember the definition of the pulpit? A platform or a stage elevated for audibility and visibility specifically for the word of God to be lifted up and proclaimed there in John 12 verse 32 I think it is he says and if I be lifted up let me let me get it right he says and I if I be lifted up from the earth will draw all men unto me so what did the cross of Jesus do it elevated him High and lifted up, rightly to be adorned. Would they say, I saw the Lord? He carried his pulpit. Now, 
Verse 4. Let's go back to that. Chapter 8, verse 4. If you give me a little grace, I, I know we, we don't change Scripture. But it, it could read like this, maybe. And Jesus, the Son of God, stood upon a pulpit of wood, which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood a list of names. And I thought to myself, everyone in Nehemiah's day, everyone in the Old Testament, every preacher and every prophet were all doing the same thing. They were putting themselves in a place to lift up and elevate the Messiah, the God, the, the, the coming Savior of the world. And that's what we do. Every week, all over America, men are standing behind a pulpit that is elevated, that gives them a position and a place to talk about the presence and the power and the person of Jesus Christ. So when I read that verse, I thought, if Jesus, the Son of God, is standing up on his pulpit of wood, which was made for a purpose. And beside him stood Justin Hall. Beside him standing Brian Smith. Beside him is standing Danny Bice. Beside him is standing Cooper Hall. We are a pulpit for God. Our life speaks. And God has given every Christian a spiritual gift. Some he's given more than one. And that positions us in a place that we can elevate and we can lift the name of Jesus Christ. You know, I, I could say that that piano is, is my pulpit. I've had some of my greatest moments to talk about Jesus sitting on the bench of, of a piano. That's how I am able to lift up the name of Jesus Christ. Our lives are pulpits. God puts us in position and, and gifting that allows us to be able to lift him and to make him known. The favorite youth verse is Matthew 5.16, right? I'm going to grind it in them. I'm going to push that seed until they are grown up and they're like, hey, Brian Smith, I, you know, they will never forget Matthew 5, 16. It's, it's one of those verses that we have to learn. I would ask them to quote it. Y'all know it? Let your light so shine before men that they see your good deeds and they glorify your Father which is in heaven. Everything that we say audibly, Everything we do visibly, if we are a Christian, we are being seen and we are being watched. And sometimes God gives us incredible position and, and purpose and opportunity just to make him known to people. And sometimes it doesn't take a word, does it? Our actions I speak louder than words. One man said, hey, you know, you are a sermon and occasionally you might have to use a word. It's all in how we live. The purpose of our pulpit is just to honor God. If it's athletics, 
academics, music, whatever God allows us to do. He's giving us those gifts, not to go out here and make a million dollars and join the NFL. He is gifting us to give us opportunity and position so that when we are elevated and we excel, to God be the glory. So, yeah, we are pulpits. God needs all of our pulpits. Scripture teaches it. He says, hey, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he will send laborers because the harvest is ready. There's just not enough laborers. So, yeah, we're all a pulpit. He gifts us all. You know, I, I, I can't get away. I, I'm, a, I'm a youth pastor at heart. I don't know when that's going to change. I'm, I'm sure at some point it will. And why it keeps making fun of my gray hair, I'm going to have such a complex, I'm going to have to quit. But at this season in my life, uh, I cannot get away from the fact that our schools absolutely will not allow the presence of God in there. And one man says, you can count numbers in a middle school, and I can tell you how many boys will be in jail. And they don't want the Bible there, but they'll beg for the Bible in prison. We, we are the pulpits. And whatever we can do to help these young people, I'm going to do it. And, and I hope that you'll help, you'll support our, our youth ministry, and you do. Thank you so much for that. To God be the glory. Revival starts, I think, in a church that elevates the purpose of the pulpit. Amen. Amen, Justin.